Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Good morning, Priebus. Good morning, Madam President. Okay, so what's on the schedule for today? No, don't tell me. I'll tell you. I, um, I woke up with this hunch that the writers at Saturday Night Live are paid agents for Chinese intelligence. And you know who's controlling them? Uh, who would that be, Madam President? Michelle Obama. Think about it. When you think about it, it totally makes sense. So how do we want to roll this out? Direct accusation from me in a tweet? You uh, uh, Put spicy in front of the cameras? What's it going to be, Prebo? This morning is getting away from us. Madam President, even though the Chinese intelligence SNL idea is very intriguing, we've set up a nice photo op connected to National Oreo Cookie Day, which is today. You want me to talk about some stupid dessert with everything else that's happening? If we want to bring up cookies, how about we bring up the fact that Hillary is letting Muslim immigrants into the White House kitchen late at night to eat all my favorite desserts out of the freezer? I've told Comey about it three times. And what has that stone-faced traitor done? Hand me my Android. Let me check. Wow, it's totally out of battery life. I guess you can't tweet about that just yet. So for the Oreo Day event, we're gonna have you hold a really cute black and white cat, just like the cookies, you know? And then you dunk an Oreo in some milk, eat the cookie, let the cat have the milk. Are you crazy? No, Madam President, you are. We're just trying to minimize that. Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting that I'm the one who's crazy. Let me try some of those cookies. And now the guy who tipped off the president about the invisible robot in his bedroom, Colin McEnroe. I did tell the president about the invisible robot in his bedroom because somebody had to. Um, and, well, anyway, uh, I don't even want to get into it. It's it's a sort of a behind-the-scenes role that I play at the White House. So, yes, uh, in just a second, we are going to have a conversation as best we can based on the facts at hand, such as they are, uh, about that development over the weekend, the notion that um, the previous occupant of the White House uh, arranged for some kind of wiretap uh, on the current occupant of the White House before he became the current occupant of the White House. I think I have that fact pattern correct. A little bit later in the show, um, you know, I mean, in a way, this is all very important stuff, the stuff we'll be talking about in the first section. We wouldn't be talking about it in the first section if it weren't important. But in a way, also, as so many things in the Trump years turn out to be, um, there are a lot of things going on that maybe aren't quite such sideshows uh, and that have far-reaching impacts, and we want to talk to you about those. Uh, we're going to be talking to Binya Applebaum from the New York Times, who's, I mean, really, if we tried to tell you all of the things that are being done at the regulatory level right now or things that are maybe more appropriately, appropriately being undone at the regulatory level, we'd be here all day. But we're going to try to give you kind of a sense of that. Things that are going on, maybe not getting quite as much publicity. Uh, and then towards the end, in a similar vein, we're going to talk to um, environmental reporter Brady Dennis from The Washington Post uh, about what it means if, in fact, you cut the budget of the EPA by one-fifth. What, what does it mean? What are you actually doing? How would that play out uh, in your neighborhood, in your streams, uh, in the air that you breathe. All right. So uh, 
note, but we do have to begin just because the news of the weekend is often so exotic uh, with the news of the weekend. And so joining us is John Schwartz. He writes for The Intercept, uh, an online publication of First Look Media. He has contributed to many publications, including The New York Times and Saturday Night Live. There's more overlap now than there ever was before. Uh, also joining us is Adrienne LaFrench, LaFrance. I'm sorry, Adrienne LaFrance. Uh, she is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers technology. She's previously a reporter at WBUR. So, um, John Schwartz, I'm going to start with you, if that's all right. And uh, maybe you can, once again, just for people who might be having a little trouble following the alleged fact pattern here, what is it? to the best of our knowledge, that Donald Trump and the Trump White House uh, is alleging happened? He seemed to say in his tweets on Saturday that Barack Obama personally ordered a wiretap on Trump Tower. You know, it's not super clear, as many things that Donald Trump says uh, are not super clear, but that's the gist of it. And, and so, I mean, there are, I don't know, I mean, it almost seems insane to try to apply any kind of normal standards to this, but let's try anyway. I mean, typically, this is not something that you would say as a fact if you were a U.S. president about your predecessor. If there were any chance that it were a fact, I would assume we'd be headed for months and months of hearings, after which much evidence having been considered, much testimony having been taken, some kind of conclusion or set of conclusions would be reached by all the people who had participated in that or observed that. This is kind of the opposite, right? It's you're kind of seeing the thing first and then inserting it maybe into a set of investigations as a result of having said it. Right. I mean, he, he said that it did happen. And now all of his factotums are saying like, well, if it happened, it would be really awful. And so somebody should look into it. Um, and, well, first of all, let's listen to uh, not one of his factotums, but a previous factotum. Let's listen to former director of national intelligence, uh, James Clapper, talking to Chuck Todd Sunday on Meet the Press. Uh, Todd asks uh, if Clapper would know uh, if the FBI had uh, a FISA court order for surveillance, has, had gotten a FISA court order for surveillance. If the FBI, for instance, had a FISA court order of some sort for a surveillance, would that be information you would know or not know? Yes. You would be told I, this. I would know that. If there was a FISA court order yes. on something like this. Um, something like this, absolutely. And at this point, you can't confirm or deny whether that exists? I can deny it. There is no FISA court order? Not, not to my knowledge. Of anything at Trump Tower? No. All right. Well, I mean, John Schwartz, there, there has been a little problem in the past with James Clapper denying things that maybe turned out to be a little bit true. But he seems pretty emphatic about this, that he would know if something like this happened and he he knows it not to have happened. What what do you, as somebody who reports on this kind of thing, make of a statement like that? Well, first of all, it is unfortunate that they sent out James Clapper to say that because <laughs> he lied very strenuously and straightforwardly a couple of years ago about surveillance on Americans. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who thought uh, that was the path to take. But, you know, my guess is that Clapper in this instance is telling the truth as he knows it. Um, and one of the things that you pointed out in your article is that there is a person who has the power to to maybe get to the bottom of this. And that person would be the person who is kind of speculatively alleging it in the first place. President Trump has some weapons at his disposal here. What are they? 
Well, the president of the United States is the person with the power to classify or declassify anything. And so if, in fact, this happened, Donald Trump could find out about it today and put it on the White House website this afternoon. Um, I mean, and, and so he literally could do that. He could just he could say to the relevant agencies, declassify that material, right? I mean, it, it seems it, it, intuitively it makes sense that he should be able to put his eyes on something like that. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, it, it's not something where we all have to sit around and speculate. It's the most frustrating thing about the whole issue involving Trump and Russia. And it's something that people should blame Obama for, too, as well, because Obama, when he was president, had the power to declassify anything. And if Obama had looked at the evidence and thought, well, this really is significant, then rather than leaving office and being like, uh, see you later, guys, good luck with this, you know, he had the power to declassify whatever the most important evidence was which would in turn have generated uh, much more pressure for an independent investigation instead of what's happening now, which is the, the intelligence committees, which are run by Republicans and, and no Democrats will trust are uh, you know, the ones in charge of this. So Trump has the power now, Obama had the power in the past. That's what's so frustrating about this story. There's lots and lots of speculation and talk and reports based on anonymous officials, but very little uh, you know, in terms of actual facts. So, uh, Adrienne uh, LaFrance, let's um, add you to this conversation. Uh, one of the things that you write about is the way in which Donald Trump is in some way reviving a version uh, of President Obama as almost this kind of James Bond villain, this guy with a very dubious uh, provenance who, whom, you know, who, whom, who's an enemy, who's an enemy uh, of, of Donald Trump and other persons unspecified. You actually draw a line from this to the birther conversation. Uh, tell me how that line looks to you. Sure. So when the White House refuses to clarify what's going on, um, you know, when they decline to explain where the, these claims that the president is making uh, are coming from, we have to at least entertain the possibility that there actually is no evidence for these claims. Um, and, and that's something we've seen from Trump in the past. So uh, obviously, you know, just looking to the, to the campaign, there's a, many, many examples of sensational um, and in some cases just outright false claims that he's made. Um, and the the biggest one from before he was even formally in politics is is the birther crusade that he went on so this uh this sort of months or even years long attempt to to prove that the president the then president uh, barack obama wasn't born in the united states was what trump had claimed um you know he went on all the cable shows he said that he had sent private investigators to hawaii to try to find um, you know, an example of fraud. Um, eventually, all of this noise that he was making culminated in the president, the then President Obama, um, releasing a copy of his birth certificate. I'm sure your listeners remember, or at least vaguely remember all of this. Um, and so there's a similar, a similar vibe here. Um, there's this extraordinary claim. Um, it's an attack against Obama's integrity in many ways. There's no evidence, at least yet, to speak of. Um, and so you have to wonder a little bit, or perhaps a lot, about his motives here and, and what he's you know, really motivated by. Well, Adrian, also, what we have here is the, uh, the one of the ways in which this is kind of 
history repeating or rhyming is the requirement that President Obama or somebody associated with him prove a negative, right? So I say you were born in Kenya or Indonesia or someplace. It's your job to prove this negative, and you produce the first document, and that's not good enough, and you produce another document. Well, that's not good enough. You know, you're so powerful, you could fake these documents. I mean, the conversation kind of has no obvious endpoint to it because, in fact, you're demanding that a negative be proved. And it, th this conversation seems to be shaping up the same way. Prove that you didn't authorize a wiretap. Well, James Clapper says that that didn't happen. Well, you could be controlling him, too. You're a very powerful guy, right? There's, there's a way in which Trump has mastered a kind of accusation that really can't be put to bed. Right. And, and he's also a master at sort of wrapping up or escalating um, sort of the, the drama in all of this. Um, you know, he now, after a, a, a day of silence from the White House after these initial tweets on Saturday, um, the White House came out with a statement that, that he wants to see an investigation into this, um, into the question of a, of a wiretap. Similarly, he, as I mentioned before, he sent private investigators to Hawaii. So there's always this sort of like ratcheting up. Um, we saw the same thing with his claim of voter fraud in the 2016 election. Um, he didn't provide evidence for that claim and then said that there had to be an investigation. And, and if you look back to the birtherism, uh, when it was proved that, his, that Trump's claims were false, even then he pressed forward for years trying to say that, you know, as you pointed out, that, oh, he's very powerful, there's some way he's still faking it. Um, and then even when he admitted uh, last fall that the president, that president Barack Obama was born in the States, he sort of recharacterized the entire thing as, as a question that he had settled for people other controversy that he had stirred up. So there's always sort of this, this pivot, this ratcheting up of tension, and then this sort of like, uh, you know, getting out of any blame for, for the frenzy he causes. Um, Adrian LaFrance from uh, Atlantic, uh, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this. Uh, her article's up online. It's worth reading. I'm going to let her go just because we're having some phone problems with her, and we're almost out of time in this segment. But John Schwartz, just to come back to you, so one th another thing that we're seeing in a way that one wonders how sustainable this is, is Donald Trump butting heads with various members of his own intelligence and law enforcement community. So this is uh, this really kind of started on day one one practically of his presidency, where he was comp comparing the CIA to Nazi Germany. Um, and now you have a situation where James Comey, whom many people would say was instrumental in the defeat of Hillary Clinton and the victory of Donald Trump, is in a very uncomfortable position, one which he clearly resents, uh, in which it is essentially being suggested. I mean, there's no way really for these operations to have taken place without the FBI having engaged in some kind of criminal activity, right? So how's that playing out between the FBI and the White House? Uh, I'm, I'm sure the FBI is extremely unhappy about it, uh, but I, it's hard for me to imagine it changing very much because you got to admit that being super crazy all the time has worked for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, you know, he, he went after, you know, not just the intelligence agencies, but a million different people that you would think, uh, would be able to shut you down. And he became president of the United States. So my guess is uh, he's just going to keep on doing it. 
Well, I mean, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is in terms of the long game. I mean, he intends to win 24-hour and 48-hour news cycles, but at the cost of alienating the so-called deep state, you know, and, and other major players, and these people don't have to get you on Thursday, you know, they might get you 90 days from now, they might get you, you know, a, a year from now, and it does seem as though the kinds of people that one needs to get through very contentious presidencies are the, exactly the kinds of people who are are walking away from or, or being pushed away from the Trump White House. I mean, he's drawn some parallels between this current moment and, and Nixon's Watergate. But Nixon's, you know, Nixon did stuff like put John Mitchell in charge of some of this stuff so that he wouldn't have the, the kinds of loggerheads, at least for a while, that he wound up having at the time of the endgame. One just does wonder how long you can be at war with the kinds of people who can hurt you so much. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But if there's one thing you can say about Donald Trump is that he's never had a really super strong long game. Um, and, and he did make an attempt to compare this to Watergate. Uh, I know that you wrote, we actually, it's, it's odd because last night, last week we did a show about the concept of treason and times in which charges of treason have arisen. And we actually mentioned the same thing that you mentioned as one of our examples, the so-called Chenault or Chenault affair, uh, which you say was probably a little bit closer to what's being talked about here than, than Watergate. Uh, do you want to remind people what that was all about? Yeah, this is a, an incredibly interesting story that has uh, barely kind of risen uh, like above the waves in U.S. politics. And even though it's one of the most important things that's really ever happened in a presidential election, in 1968, Richard Nixon was the Republican candidate. Uh, the Democratic candidate was Hubert Humphrey, who was Lyndon Johnson's vice president. And at the time, Johnson was trying to make an honest attempt to bring the Vietnam War to an end. And Nixon was worried that if he was able to make a peace deal, that this would help Humphrey. And so Nixon, uh, via Anna Cheneau, I think is how her name is pronounced, uh, yeah, you know, established uh, communication with the South Vietnamese government and told them, do not go along with Johnson's peace plan. Like, we'll get a better deal for you if you just hold out and let us win the election. And then uh, everything will be better for you than if you say yes to this. And that is about as bad as it gets, especially because, you know, Nixon did win. Uh, he did not stop the war for several years longer. 20,000 more American soldiers died. Uh, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese, also people all over into China, you know, and Cambodia. I mean, it's incredibly gruesome. And the peace deal that Nixon was able to come up with at the very end was not that different from what Johnson had in mind. So, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people died so that Richard Nixon could be president. And Johnson knew this was going on at the time and, in fact, was doing uh, – had ordered the FBI to conduct surveillance of the South Vietnamese embassy. The FBI was doing surveillance of Ina Cheneau and never told America about it. And so, you know, who knows what's – what happened during this election that Obama decided not to tell us about because we couldn't handle it. You know, that was the rationale of, of Johnson in 1968 and the people around him. First, that we couldn't handle it and it would make them look bad and it was really dicey and so forth. And so people did not know for sure that this actually did happen uh, for decades. And, and so that we're going to end this segment in just a second. But that sort of goes back to your point that, you know, whatever was happening 
2016, it might have made some sense for President Obama to declassify some of it. Or, I mean, either that or we admire his reticence and maybe the way that we semi-admire Johnson's unwillingness to disrupt a political process by introducing this kind of information. But in, in each case, information that's pretty important to have that wound up costing, as you say in the, in the, in the earlier case, uh, an awful lot of lives on both sides of the war, um, information was withheld that, that probably was worth knowing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And with Obama, it's it's arguably worse because he did go ahead and say that this was an issue in public mm. uh, without explaining or proving exactly why, whereas Johnson just never said anything about it at all. All right. So we're going to stop there. Uh, we've got uh, many segments to go and really uh, some very interesting conversations to have. But we do thank uh, John Schwartz, who writes for The Intercept. And Adrienne LaFrance, uh, who writes for The Atlantic, will be back uh, to talk a little bit more about the sort of what happens as a result of some of the rollbacks that Donald Trump promised to do during the campaign. Well, he turns out to be a man of his word. Wait till you find out what that means. So uh, during the campaign, uh, you heard Donald Trump say that uh, his first hundred days or maybe even his first day or two would be doozies, you know, that he would sort of get in there and start undoing all kinds of things, not just the ACA or otherwise known as Obamacare and not just immigration policy, but he's going to undo all kinds of stuff. Well, we tend to focus an awful lot on these sideshows that turned out to be center ring shows. I guess they're not sideshows. They're what our eyes are on. So when he does something like he did this weekend and make this uh, claim based on a hunch or an educated guess or something uh, that President Obama had tapped his his communication system. That's what we talk about. And and as a result, an awful lot of things are happening uh, that uh, the public isn't really paying much attention to and the press is doing its best to write about and to rise above the noise of this other stuff. And one of the journalists who's uh, been doing that kind of reporting is our next guest, uh, Binya Applebaum, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Uh, his article, co-written, I think, with Eric Lipton, uh, was in The New York Times this weekend. Leashes come off Wall Street, gun sellers, polluters, and more. We'll be talking a lot more about the polluters in the final segment. But uh, Binya Applebaum, this this is, I mean, the article itself is um, quite a laundry list uh, of, of a lot of things uh, a lot of regulations and, and laws that people wanted rolled back, that uh, you know, that lobbyists, industry, and even the ACLU wanted changed. And, and it turns out they're, they're getting their wish list. Uh, can you say a little bit more about this? Is there a way to take something so comprehensive and, and turn it into a nutshell? Yeah, you know, I think we were a little surprised to find out how many items already are on that laundry list. As you said, Donald Trump during his presidential campaign made clear that one of his priorities was to reverse uh, the regulatory state was to roll back regulations on on corporations and the way they interact with consumers and and with people in their everyday lives uh, and he's doing it uh, you know we found more than 90 rules that have been suspended or outright killed just in the first few weeks of this administration and uh, you know the administration is also laying the groundwork for uh, an ongoing push against regulation this is just the beginning. Um, so I guess the nutshell summary is, is you know, that, uh, I mean, maybe Steve Bannon, the president's chief political advisor, put it best. They, they really do seem determined to deconstruct uh, the administrative state to make a real uh, U-turn in the way that the government 
uh, regulates the economy. So sometimes with these things that have been overturned, it's kind of hard to figure out what the rationale for them would be other than A, they're a rule and this administration doesn't like rules, and B, maybe they're a nuisance for somebody else to have to comply with. So just to pick from your story, giants in telecommunications like Verizon and AT&T will not have to take, quote, reasonable measures, unquote, to ensure that their customers' social security numbers, web browsing history, and other personal information are not stolen or accidentally released. Well, I I can pretty well guarantee you that however many people are listening to this show right now, 100% of them want telecommunications giants to take reasonable measures to protect their social security numbers and, and, and other information. So I don't know. How, what's the, what is the thinking behind overturning that idea? Yeah, you know, rules have costs. I mean, from the industry's perspective, the answer here is that, sure, if you ask people, would they like X? Would they like Y? Would they like Z? People are likely to be pretty you know, broad-minded about all of the things they'd like to be regulated and prohibited and kept safe from. But each of those prohibitions and regulations comes with a cost. And that cost is, in the first place, imposed on the company, but probably in, in most cases, ultimately is transferred through to the shareholders or to the customers, which is to say to the rest of us. And so as a society, we're constantly engaged, uh, or at least our government is constantly engaged in balancing the benefits of regulations and the cost that those regulations impose. And so things that seem like a great idea, particularly if they're free, need to be evaluated against the reality that they do, in fact, you know, in the case of that telecommunications measure, impose some amount of additional cost that's likely to come into your phone bill or your internet bill or your cable bill, uh, you know, and, and then society needs to evaluate whether or not it's worth it. But that's not what's happening, right? In other words, if, if we were going to have a, a rational, even semi-extended conversation about that, about what you just said, all right, that, yes, on the one hand, I don't want, you know, I don't want it to be any easier than it already is or has to be for somebody to hack my personal data out of some telecommunications company that I deal with. I don't want that, but maybe I don't really exactly know how many pennies are showing up on my bill as a result of the cost of doing that. But, I mean, that's, and, and maybe I would rather save those pennies. But that's not really what's happening, right? I mean, if 90 changes like this have been made in such a short time, nobody's having that conversation. No. What's actually happening here is that the Trump administration is saying, listen, we think the Obama administration got this wrong by an order of magnitude, that they vastly overstated the benefits of regulation, they vastly underestimated the cost of regulation, and sort of a broad expanse of regulatory activity that the last administration thought was a good idea, we think is a bad idea. We're not making individual judgments about it. We're just saying we're just going to take a weed whacker to this whole complex of regulations because we think that, you know, it needs to be dramatically reduced uh, in the Trump administration's view in order to unleash economic growth. Uh, and so we're not going to ask too many questions. We just think there needs to be a, a really significant change in direction. Now, one, one area where I think there was pretty cohesive American sentiment back in 2008 and 2009, where the towers of American finance were collapsing around us like the towers of Ilium, you know, that there was, I think, this sense that, yeah, there hadn't been uh, a teacher in the kindergarten class, that, that people had been doing pretty much whatever they wanted. There were situations where uh, the average American who might be dealing with some kind of investment advisor didn't quite understand 
and how many agendas that investment advisor might have. Not all of those agendas would necessarily be constructed to serve that individual customer uh, or even a large group of customers like a pension fund or something like that. Uh, There might be other ways uh, in which Wall Street was not explaining that they were collecting extra money, as you pointed out, from customers to cover potential losses from certain kinds of high-risk trades. Um, So some of the things that may have contributed to or really directly unleashed the destructive forces of the 2008 financial crisis had been reined in or at least addressed by some regulations. And those are among the ones that have been instantly undone. I don't know. Can you enlarge a little bit on what I just said? So I think that what the story that you just told is basically right. We had this huge financial crisis, and in the aftermath, the government sought to improve regulation of the financial system to prevent that kind of thing from happening again. Most of those regulations have not been reversed yet. Uh, you know, I think the Trump administration has made clear that it wants to change the nation's approach to financial regulation, that it thinks that banks are overburdened with rules and with safeguards, and that it, it intends to reverse many of those things. But as I said, you know, we're at the beginning of a process. What we've seen fairly quickly is a number of, of smaller measures that are more ancillary to the crisis itself that, that have come you know, sort of under immediate scrutiny or been reversed. One of the most prominent is a measure that says, and this will probably strike most listeners as, as common sense, and they may even be surprised that this wasn't true already. It says that your financial advisor, if they're offering advice on retirement plans, needs to do so uh, in a way that's in your interest. They can't offer you bad advice. They can't tell you to buy a particular fund because they're getting a kickback from the fund company. Uh, They need to point you in the direction of the fund that's best for you. Um, that's going to strike a lot of people as being a rule that, that you know, is, is maybe how they imagined the world worked already or should work. And it was something that was finally uh, made into law very recently by the Obama administration. And it's something that the Trump administration has said it wants to reverse uh, as quickly as possible, that it thinks it, it imposes undue burdens on the industry and has unforeseen consequences, and they want to they get rid of it. So, again, you know, we're back to the thing that you were saying before, where maybe it makes, I mean, obviously that rule, as you say, it it just, you know, it doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, the idea that it needs to be undone doesn't pass the smell test. But there might be interesting conversations to have about some of the claims that Wall Street makes about whether certain things are inhibitors to financial growth and and stuff like that. And uh, Wall Street is showing up with its own wish list, its own shopping list at this candy store whose shutters have been flung open wide. But, you know, some of these things, it's it's hard to imagine the argument they're going to mount. For example, one that's mentioned in your article is the disclosure of the ratio of CEO compensation to the lowest paid workers in the same company. So, you know, we can argue back and forth about why that might be an interesting thing to know and why, why it might contribute to an overall healthy and less engorged uh, view of executive compensation. But, I mean, how, how do they argument, argue that it's an inhibitor to economic growth? I mean, that seems to be sort of part of what they're saying. I mean, you know, I, I can sit here and tell you the industry argument, which basically involves you know, the concept that that, uh, these are misleading statistics, that uh, providing them in the way that the law requires is going to essentially misinform uh, the public about the the way the industry works and and therefore, you know, lead to incorrect conclusions about what ought to happen next. There's a 
there's a long, you know, explanation. There are people who are paid a lot of money and who are very intelligent, and it's their job to come up with plausible explanations for why things should and shouldn't happen. The bottom line with that one is that the industry hates it. They view it, and by the industry, I mean the chief executives who are subject to that requirement. They hate the idea. They find it personally offensive. Uh, they want it to go away, and they're very powerful, and they have an administration who's sympathetic uh, and willing to get rid of it for them. That's the that's the bottom line there. And the fact that there are sort of long and complicated arguments on both sides, the truth is that requirement is neither going to change the world in a good direction or in a bad direction. It's something that you know made some people feel better. It makes these executives feel worse. Uh, the people who don't like it won the election, and so it's going to go away. Um I have so much that I want to ask you. Uh, I'm talking to Binya Applebaum from the New York Times. This is a terrific article. There's no way that we can summarize it in a short radio interview, so make sure you read afterwards. Leashes come off Wall Street, gun sellers, polluters, and more. As long as we've got gun sellers in there. Uh, you know, this is one, this is an interesting one because, I mean, a lot of these things that you write about are, are the result of really years and years of lobbying by very highly paid lobbyists who work for very big companies, for, for big pharma and for the auto industry. Uh, uh, and but so here's one that the ACLU actually supports, although once again, it seems kind of counterintuitive. And this notion that people with certain kinds of mental illness uh, should uh, not be able to buy a gun. Um, that's one of the ones that appears destined for rollback. Tell us about that. So, you know, that's a good example of a rule where things start to get more complicated. A lot of these regulations actually pit you know, competing interests where there are, you know, significant concerns on either side of the issue and where the government is essentially trying to find the right place to draw the line. And the issue here is basically at what point does a person become so incapacitated by mental illness that the state should make a judgment that it is too dangerous for them to own a firearm? And this was a rule that basically, you know, said that the line should be drawn based on there's a system basically for deciding whether a person is competent to have control of their own uh, federal disability benefits. And this provision basically said if a person can't handle their own money, uh, they shouldn't be allowed to buy a gun. That's what the rule was that, that was established by the Obama administration. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, advocates for the mentally ill and for people's civil rights who basically say, listen, uh, you know, those two things, there's not an obvious connection between them. The process for deciding who can handle their money is pretty, you know, bureaucratic and, and quick, and, and it's not intended to be a judgment about whether gun ownership is advisable, and you're sort of using it to do something else, and, and we don't think that was a good idea. Uh, and so, you know, you can imagine reasonable arguments being made on both sides of that. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of people in this country who have strong feelings about whether gun policy in general is in the right place, but if you have a system in which pretty, pretty much people are presumed to be able to buy guns, uh, and you're talking about excluding people just because they're mentally ill, uh, you know, where that line should be drawn is a legitimate subject for, for conversation. The Obama administration drew it in one place, uh, and the Trump administration, which, you know, has the NRA as one of its powerful backers, is basically saying, we, we don't want that line drawn. So one of the arguments, the sort of pre-arguments that lead up to this moment, and it's a long-standing claim, is that if you do these kinds of things, not the kind of thing we just talked about, but if you roll back a, a lot of government uh, regulations which amount to an impediment to economic growth or to uh, be able to do business as one pleases, you know, whether those things are some of the other stuff that you reported, like re regulations that require increased mileage standards or uh, regulations that affect farm 
pharmaceutical companies that want to relax rules that protect against the marketing of prescription drugs for unapproved uses, stuff like that, that ultimately what you're doing is liberating uh, a free market, uh, a market that will be able to function uh, unimpeded. And in fact, at least over the short haul, the Trump administration can point to a very happy stock market uh, that just hit 21,000. Um, so I, I don't know, how, how does that argument affect or reinforce the philosophies that are being used to justify these rollbacks? So number one, the stock market is not a broad economic indicator. If it summarizes anything about the economy, it summarizes the extent to which the owners of corporations are likely to see higher profits. So, you know, the fact that it's going up may be a reflection on, you know, the belief that this in, this administration is predisposed to enrich corporations uh, more than some judgment that it's predisposed to unleash economic growth. But the broader question about what role regulation plays in the economy is a really important one. Uh, and there is no doubt, you know, as we said sort of at the outset, that regulations impose real costs and are often, you know, significant costs that need to be balanced against the purported benefits. And there is a case to be made in some cases that that balance went too far in the direction of limiting growth. And, and in other cases, a society may make a judgment that, that the things the regulation achieves are more important than a little more growth. Uh, what I would emphasize is that that is not really at issue in most of these cases. These are mostly cases about who gets the money more than how much money there is. Uh, there's, and, and industries often are in favor of regulations because they set you know, sort of a level playing field for everyone to compete on, or because they prevent new companies from coming in and, and taking away business. Uh, so the dynamics here, to simplify, to say that this is a debate about how fast the economy should grow versus how safe we should be is a huge oversimplification of, of these dynamics. You know, one of the examples we talk about in the article is this rule about how easy it is for chicken farmers to sue the companies that process their chickens. Uh, you know that is that's a dispute between two groups of businesses, um, and and what the government is basically doing is is deciding which group of businessmen should have a little bit more power. That's a, that's not a debate about making the economy grow quicker. That's a debate about which side the government wants to reward in an ongoing turf war. You know, we said at the outset um, of this conversation, uh, Binya Applebaum, that during the campaign, um, then-candidate Trump was basically talking about doing this kind of stuff, getting rid of all kinds of regulations willy-nilly. Um, you know, and, and that resounded pretty well, uh, probably, with the kind of people who voted for him. But if we have a working hypothesis about sort of what this campaign was about and what the election was about, typically it includes this notion of populism, this notion that uh, President Trump was going to drain the swamp uh, of the influence uh, of lobbyists and corporate money and that he was going to make government for the average person, the average person who'd been left behind, left out. And, and it does seem as though in some instances that's something that's not really being fulfilled as a campaign pro promise that, you know, that, that, for example, President Trump talked during the campaign about using the leverage of the federal government to negotiate down drug prices. Uh, he came out of a meeting with the pharmaceutical industry saying he was against price fixing, <laughs> which is this new term for getting those prices down. That in a way, ultimately, if you're going to be answerable to highly paid lobbyists, you may have a hard time pivoting back to your message that you're about the, the, the furnace fixer and the pipe fitter and the, the guy on the production line, that those, those are your real clients, politically speaking. The issues that President Trump campaigned on that seem most clearly populist in tenor, the idea that 
you know, he was going to rebuild the American manufacturing uh, complex by restricting foreign imports or by, you know, requiring uh, some types of federal projects to use made in America goods or whatever it is that people thought was going to help them in their daily lives. Uh, you know, the promise to keep his hands off of federal safety net programs, uh, you know, all these uh, or the drug prices issue, you know, these have not been the focus of the administration's early days. Uh, the administration's early agenda has been extremely focused on a set of issues that, frankly, are most likely to provide direct benefits to corporate interests. And we have certainly seen that in the regulatory arena where, uh, you know, there is this clear pattern that many of these rules that are being prioritized for uh, rollback or erasure uh, immediately follow requests from affected industries. Uh, industries are writing in or calling in or getting in touch with people in the Trump administration and saying, we don't like this, we don't like that. We, we, you know, a great example of this is, you know, the auto industry, which negotiated these fuel efficiency standards with the Obama administration, agreed to these targets, but did so basically because they had to. They were getting the best deal they could from the last administration, has immediately come back to the table and said, you know, well, listen, hey, we, we don't want to do that much if we don't have to. Can we have another conversation about it? And uh, the Trump administration has said, yeah, let's do that. Let's have, you know, not as much uh, fuel efficiency. Um, and that's happening not because someone has made a judgment that it's good for the American people. It's happening because the auto industry knocked on the administration's door, and this administration is much more receptive uh, to an argument that uh, if you make more room for corporations to do their thing, uh, everyone ultimately will benefit somewhere down the road. Well, Ben Ya Applebaum, thank you so much for sharing your fine reporting uh, with us, a Washington correspondent from The New York Times. Give my regards to Eric Lipton. I knew him in the newsroom when he was a young whippersnapper. Uh, we're going to take a little break right now. We're going to talk specifically about the EPA. What does it mean when you start talking about cutting 20 percent of the EPA budget? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, with help from Amanda Fish, who helped uncover the conspiracy to replace Mitch McConnell with a shape-shifting alien reptile. Our intern is Ali Oshinsky, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Octavia Spencer. Come visit us on the Colin McEnroe Show page at Facebook. On tomorrow's show, speaking of reptiles, the latest on UFOs. And now. Back to Colin. Yeah, Amanda Fish has been doing great work since she got here. It turns out we didn't have to teach Amanda Fish anything. So, um, all right. So uh, we've been talking in a very general way uh, about uh, rollbacks uh, of regulations, uh, rollbacks of the output of existing laws on, on the books. But let's talk really specifically about one area, and that would be the EPA. Joining us now from the Washington Post is reporter uh, Brady Dennis. Brady Dennis, first of all, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, it, it can be argued, and it is argued in your article, that yes, all kinds of um, things are being changed, things are being cut back, uh, that this is going to be a very tough budget on everything but the military, but that the EPA in particular is being singled out for pain. Um, how singled out is the EPA? Um, I think they've. Uh, they, the, a lot of folks there do feel singled out. I don't think that they feel particularly surprised. I mean, uh, if, to anyone who was listening closely during the campaign, 
uh, candidate, Donald Trump, talked a lot about the EPA, and he vowed to get rid of it. And um, his quote was in almost every form and to leave only little tidbits intact. So I think you are seeing kind of the first steps in that play out with this uh, proposal that was floated around last week, which would cut the EPA by about a quarter um, and would result in about, uh, I think, about 3,000 people um, uh, getting getting um, cut from the agency. Right. That would be 3,000 out of 15,000. Go to 15,000 out of 12,000. Uh, you've got uh, grants to states uh, for various kinds of environmental cleanup and air and water programs uh, also being proposed for cuts. And so there's an odd bit of theater that's coming up here. And, and, and that is that Scott Pruitt, the man who was picked by Donald Trump to run the EPA and, and who was identified, as I think as everybody knows, as having been as an attorney general incredibly hostile to the goals of the EPA and very eager to file lawsuits about their basic jurisdiction over basic kinds of environmental ma- matters. In your article, it almost seems as though Scott Pruitt is saying, well, let's not go so fast here. Some of this stuff is maybe stuff that we we at the EPA need to do. I, I think I think you said it exactly right. It's, 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 it's quite a strange situation that played out last week after we reported on this budget, um, which really, um, really puts a big cuts out a big chunk of the EPA's budget and would do away really with about three dozen separate programs, many of them quite popular and, and considered successful and, and, and popular in districts across the country. So by saying that, I mean with Republican and Democratic lawmakers. The day after that, I, I went to a speech that uh, Scott Pruitt was giving to uh, mayors from around the country, and he almost seemed to uh, uh, you know, take a step away from some of the some of the things in this budget and say, wait a minute, you know, uh, the Superfund program, which cleans up you know toxic waste sites, and Brownfields program, which is essentially cleaning up abandoned industrial sites. These things are uh, critical, and we have to keep doing this. And he was saying to this group of mayors who was in from around the country, bring me your stories of how these have been successful. I want to take those stories to the White House and make the case that um, some of these things that are on the chopping block maybe shouldn't be. Um, and I don't think anyone would have predicted Scott Pruitt being quite in that situation uh, before taking over at the EPA. Right. He's saying, in the spirit of Jerry Maguire, help me to help you. So as right. you write, 38 separate programs where it would be eliminated entirely. These include grants to clean up brownfields, uh, also zeroed out the radon program, climate change initiatives, funding for Alaskan native villages. But, you know, when you when you note that Pruitt is talking about brownfields, I mean, that's a, that's a weird one to target because brownfields don't exist. Brownfield cleanup doesn't exist um, in a vacuum. It's part of a lot of cities in particular, um, economic development programs, right? You clean up the brownfield, you put something really cool on that site. Uh, the real estate's implicitly cheap. You can maybe do something. We, we certainly have seen that happen very effectively here in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So it right. may be not surprising. I mean, in a way, if you sort of think about, you know, economic development and some of the other things that, that President Trump believes in, it's kind of surprising to see that one on the list. That's right. I mean, and so uh, in that sense, it's maybe not surprising that he went out and talked about it in a positive way. It was maybe more surprising that it was in the budget to be cut. And again, we, you know, this is a proposal. These change all the time before they become finalized. We don't know if it will ultimately um, suffer any cuts. I, I think what's interesting also is kind of what Scott Pruitt didn't talk about. I mean, he didn't uh, really back away in any uh, explicit way from uh, large cuts in the agency's core um, programs that, 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 you know, in the most basic sense, 
aim to keep clean air and clean water around the country. And there were huge cuts to uh, specific um, well-known programs such as cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay. It would almost be completely wiped out. Same with uh, efforts to clean up the Great Lakes and the Puget Sound um, out west. So, uh, you know, he he did step out and defend um, some of these things, which, like you said, uh, do help to create jobs in local communities and do help to um, help businesses, Um, not so much for some of the other programs. There's also, I think, you know, one of the, probably the most compelling and well-known environmental story of the last few years is the water in Flint, Michigan. Uh, you know, and that's that's got a lot of components to it, including the idea of environmental justice, that there are some communities that are fundamentally underserved because they're not well-connected in various ways. That notion of environmental justice also seems under assault in the current plan. Well, not just seems so. I mean, the, the, the EPA's own environmental justice program was slated to be one of the ones that's completely zeroed out, that's completely eliminated. And so, I mean, I think uh, folks in a lot of communities are worried about that. I personally have been to Flint and have seen um, there this sense of uh, distrust of the government. And, and But essentially in Flint, it was a, a, a state government that took the brunt of the blame for, for not ensuring that the water there was safe. And so um, I think one other thing that that people don't realize is that a lot of funding for the, a lot of the EPA's funding, about four billion dollars a year, goes out to help states and localities do this kind of thing to help them rebuild their water infrastructure or to do other projects that um, are aimed at improving the quality of air and water. So if the EPA's budget gets slashed, it's not just um, you know some some bureaucrats in Washington who will uh, suffer from that. That'll certainly be the case, but it will also be a lot of folks out in communities um, who will see a lot of that critical funding dry up. Brady Dennis from The Washington Post. Time for one quick question. We've only got about a minute left. But how likely is it, uh, from what you can tell, that some kind of reverse of the process that made Scott Pruitt famous in the first place is in the offing, that attorneys general from states who are affected by these cuts, who feel as though their ability to keep their air and their water clean is disabled by these cuts, are, are going to file lawsuits trying to force the EPA to do its job? Yeah, I, th- I think I'd say two different things about that. And one is just the court process that's going to play out if and when the EPA begins to roll back a lot of the regulations of the Obama era. And just like when the Obama administration undertook some of these regulations, whether it was um, uh, a regulation known as the Clean Power Plan, which regulated um, uh, emissions from power plants, or any number of other programs, The EPA always is prepared to be sued and has ended up in court over that. And I think just as that happened during the Obama years, when if this administration tries to roll those back, there will be environmental groups and others who are willing to step in and go to court over that. All right. So lawyers are going to get rich. We're going to have to stop you right there. Brady Dennis uh, will take uh, uh, that up on another date. Thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. We'll see you tomorrow to talk about UFOs. Somehow or other, that seems to fit. Because whatever you're fighting for, racism or poverty, feminism, gay rights, or any type of equality, it won't matter in the least. Because if we don't all work together to save the environment, we will be equally extinct. Also, previous, did you ask the Obamas when they're going to come pick up that weird life-sized clown statue of theirs that's still in the bedroom? I just got off the phone with them, Madam President. They don't own any clown statue.